we just prayed to him, the Lord Jesus, and, and now let's take a little time and talk about him. Uh, it's the last week of his earthly life. It's called Passion Week from the Latin word for suffering. It's the week of his suffering. He anticipated it. He came, lived here in anticipation of the time when he would die here for one such as you and I. He came to his own. They received him not. He suffered the most severe of rejections and the most uh, degrading forms of abuse. And then he was impaled on a cross, perhaps the most excruciating form of capital punishment devised by sinful man. And in this last week, it's uh, fair to ask, how did he spend it? What did he do? What did he say? These chapters in John's gospel, uh, we're at the end of chapter 12 tonight, uh, begin to tell us how he spent his time in his last week here. So it's in John chapter 12, verse 27, where we'll take a close look of what he did during his final hours. In John 12, verse 27, it's the Lord praying. Uh, we just prayed to him, now he's praying. And this is what he prayed. Now, says he, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, I could ask you to save me from this hour. Should I do that? No, it is for this hour, for this purpose that I actually came. Who is he speaking to? He's surrounded by a crowd at this point. His disciples, his intimate followers are there as well. They're watching everything. But he's acting here as if none of them exist. He's not speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to the crowd. He's addressing his remarks to his father. I want to tell you, folks, the fatherhood of God, I think, can be our strongest refuge in time of need. And God the Son modeled it for us. Uh, the Almighty loves being a dad in the full sense of what that means, to be available and present, to provide and to guide, to be concerned and attentive. And the Lord Jesus knew it. And during his time of need, and we know he was needy because the text says his soul, his very soul became troubled. He found relief and rest in making his father his refuge. I hope you and I do the same. And so he says during this intense time of inner turmoil, my soul has become troubled. Do you notice that Jesus is not going into the events of this week unfeeling. He's not that kind of stoic deity. He possessed and experienced the full gamut of human emotions. Though God, he became man, and there was no charade about it. He felt what we feel, and here he's feeling troubled. He's disturbed and distressed. 
He makes recourse, therefore, to his father. And you may wonder, what is it about his impending death? That's what it was. But what is it about his impending death specifically that caused him such turmoil? Was it his anticipation of the physical pain he would endure? Maybe to some extent, for as I mentioned, crucifixion was an intensely painful form of crucifixion. The Romans, you know this, perfected it so as to elongate the agony of the one impaled on the cross. This was to be a deterrent to all others who would dare stand up against Roman authority. So was it that that he was anticipating, the dreaded physical pain? Maybe to some extent, but I don't think that was really it. I think what he dreaded most was a kind of spiritual separation, uh, the kind of Uh, of which you and I sadly have become accustomed to and even comfortable with. Our sin separates us from intimate fellowship with the Father. Uh, Sadly, we have a threshold for it, but his was low because he never experienced it. From before time, from eternity past, there never was a second when the Lord Jesus experienced unbroken fellowship with his Father. He prized and valued it. You and I don't. We choose sin oftentimes more than unbroken fellowship with our uh, Lord and sin bearer. But to him, uh, this was the most valuable thing, his unobstructed relationship with the Father. And I think what he was anticipating is that he would be becoming sin for us. Don't you understand what this meant for the sinless one, not as much for you and I. We are sinful ones. Sin found its place in us, but it was a foreign agent in him. He's the sinless one, the holy one. And for a spell, he anticipated it on his shoulders. Our sin would be put. He would die differently than when you and I die. We Christians will die with the load of our sin removed. He'll die with the load of the world's sin upon his shoulders. And it would obstruct his communion with his father. And I think it's this which caused him such inner turmoil and distress. And so in his anguish, he poses... It's a question. It's not a prayer. Don't misinterpret it. It's a question. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I think we would be mishandling the text if we thought he's asking the Father to do that. No, lest you think that, he answers his own statement, his own question. What should I say, Father? Save me? Get me out of this? But then he says quickly, no, 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 for this purpose... I came. This is the purpose for which Jesus came. It is to bear the world's sin and guilt in his death on the cross. And he was ready to pay the price. And so the cost of our redemption came at a great cost to him. I want you to see a little depiction of a practice that took place in ancient times. Uh, If you lived in ancient days in Israel and were Jewish and sinned, you would bring a, a very important part of what you owned. It would be an unblemished, no defect, male lamb, and you would bring it to the precincts of the temple. You would wait your turn because everyone is a sinner. 
They're in a big long line waiting for an available priest to guide them in a procedure. And the priest would instruct you to do what's depicted here. Put your hands on the head of this lamb and repeat after me. And they would pray something kind of like this. They would say, oh, almighty God, I have sinned against you and you alone. I deserve penalty for my sin. However, would you please accept this innocent living being in my place for my sin? I lay hold of this innocent living thing, and in such fashion I transfer my sin, its guilt, and all the rest onto the head of this innocent living thing. Would you accept its death in my place? That's what would happen. And folks, don't you see, that's exactly what Jesus, the Lamb of God, has done for us. He knew it from before time. He was prepared to pay the price so as to procure our salvation. He wasn't trying to get out of it. Not at all. For this hour, it's the hour of his death. It is for this hour, said he, that I came. And then he says in verse 28, he's continuing his uh, remarks to the Father. He says, Father, glorify your name. Uh, folks, that's the premier purpose for which Jesus lived. It wasn't to avoid crucifixion. It was to do all things that brought glory to the name of his Father. This was his singular purpose in living life. What does it mean to glorify the Father, to glorify God? It means to call attention to his name, his person, his being, his purposes. It means to make him an issue amongst other people who, though created and made in his image, have a tendency to ignore him and forget him and live life as if they're the source of their lives. <laughs> it is to forget the giver of life that most of us are prone to do. And the one who's glorifying him is the one who's not letting us. In word and deed, that one is obligating the observers to pay attention to Almighty God who is there. When you declare truth about him, you're glorifying him. When you live in light of a value system that pleases him, even when it means you're going against the grain, when someone says to you, why don't you do this? Why do you feel that? And you say, it's because of the relationship I have with Almighty God the giver of life. You are glorifying him. And this was the Lord's desire. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes out of heaven. And here's what it said. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The father heard and answered as if he's saying to the son, son, not to worry. I've been glorified through the life you've lived there amongst those sinners you came to save. And I will be glorified even through crucifixion, followed by resurrection and ascension. And one day I will be glorified when every knee bows and every tongue confesses you, my son, our Lord of all. So God the Father spoke from the heavenlies Three times in the Gospels, we have four books called Gospels. They are biographies of Christ. They're written variously by these 
fellas, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in the fourth gospel here. If you look through all four gospels, I did this during the week, you will find three times an audible response from the heavenlies with regard to Jesus the Son. Only three times. The first, I'll bet you remember this, is when the Lord uh, submitted to baptism in the Jordan River. And then a voice came from on high. It was the Father's voice. And the voice said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you remember that one? Then the second time when an audible response came from on high to the sun was on the mount called Transfiguration, Mount of Transfiguration. And there the Lord's humanity was pulled back for an instant so as to reveal his divinity and his majesty. And there the Father's voice broke the silence and it said something similar. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But then there was an addition. Then the father said, listen to him. That was the second time. Now the third time there was an audible response to the son from on high is the one we're reading about right here. The son said, father, glorify your name. And the father replies, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, what? in the world did the bystanders make of this? Remember, he's in a crowd. It's in Jerusalem. It's Passover time. There are hundreds of thousands of people, and he was popular. He's the one to whom is attributed the resurrection of a guy named Lazarus. People were coming from far and wide to see the healer and also to see Lazarus. He's enveloped by a crowd. What in the world is the crowd thinking when they hear this voice from on high? Well, we know what they were thinking. We're told in verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. So people then, just like now, explained away things. They heard a sound. They couldn't discern the words. They weren't discerning enough to do that. And so some gave a naturalistic explanation to a supernatural event. They said it's thunder. People do that today. They explain away the supernatural miracles and all the rest in naturalistic terms. But then the others, no, uh, they gave a supernatural explanation. They said, you can see it there, an angel has spoken to him. Now, those are folks who didn't commit the same error as the first group. Their error was a new one, and that is to distort the supernatural. So they had a distorted understanding of authentic supernatural manifestation. They attributed the voice not to God, but to angels. Now, what did the Lord make of all this? Verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And so he addresses the crowd, and he speaks to them about the purpose for this unusual event. He says pretty plainly, this is not for me, it's for you. Now, what did he mean by saying that? I think he was saying, I don't need the assurance of an audible response to my prayer to the Father, because I know my Father loves me, will never forsake me. I am assured of his presence 
compassion, power, and care. And so the expression of his response to me audibly is not for me. I don't need that. You need it. It's for you. They had to see the union between the unseen father and the visible one claiming to be his son. They had to see Jesus is the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah who was to come. They had to see he's no fraud. He's not laying claim to that which is not his. They had to see he is in union with the father in a way nobody else is. And therefore he said, what's happening is not for me, it's for you. And then he says, verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. So the Jewish religious leadership, the government, is uh, planning to render a verdict about this radical rabbi Jesus. They're going to declare him a blasphemer, a fraud, a pretender to the throne. Rome will also render their judgment soon about this unusual Rabbi Yeshua, the Lord Jesus. And why the, while the power brokers of the world and even the normal pedestrians in the way are getting ready to judge the Lord, I have to tell you, uh, the Lord, based upon their judgment of him, is going to judge them. Folks, the deciding issue of life with regard to how we stand in the judgment is not what is your religious background. You'll not be asked that question when you stand before the Father. Uh, the deciding question with regard to your eternity will not be uh, are you black or are you white? No, no, you're not going to be. That's not the deciding issue with regard to your eternity. Uh, the question that decides your eternity will not be, how many good things have you done? It won't be that. I'm telling you. It'll be this singular question. It'll be something like it. The Father will ask you, what have you done with my son? That's the question. The answer to which will decide your eternity and mine. Not our gender, not our race. Not our stock portfolio, not our age, not our denominational affiliation, and not our political party. Those things are all important, but they're really not essential. The right answer to this question is essential. How have you judged my son? Because the manner in which you have judged my son will determine how I judge you. Did you judge him to be a good teacher? Guilty as charged. Did you judge him to be a pretender to the throne? Guilty as charged. Did you judge him to be God in the form of man? A sin sacrifice, a substitute, the Lamb of God, whose sacrifice was to provide atonement for the world. Yes, Father, yes. Case dismissed. Enter into eternity. What have you done with my son? Are you a dad or your granddad? Would you let someone take advantage of your son or grandson? You don't care what else may be true of that person. Whether he has a sense of humor, is good looking, lives next door, can give you a job. You don't care. The issue for you is 
How have you treated my son? Well, why should it be any different with the father? That's the deciding issue. And so the Lord warns them in the last few days of his life. Judgment is upon the world. Now he goes further. This is not the only reality happening. It's also this one. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's what he says. Now, folks, the ruler of this world is one variously referred to in Scripture as Satan and as the adversary and as the devil. Now, the same book, the Bible, that has persuaded me Jesus is the Savior and he's real has also persuaded me Satan is real. I uh, am persuaded by the Bible to believe, that is, to trust in the Son and to avoid the devil. But, the, but Satan is just as real as Savior. Now, for those of you who don't buy it, you're the ones in the crowd who would have given God's voice a naturalistic explanation. You would have said it's thunder. I'm telling you, the only rational explanation for the grotesque evil which we see sometimes manifesting itself in individuals' lives, in families, and in the world is due to the existence of an evil one. He's the ruler of this world. But the Lord's almost last words say, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He was a beautiful angel, this, this Lucifer, and he had high rank. And in his irrational pride, he desired those things which can only be righteously, justifiably offered God. He desired two things, worship and obedience. That's what he wants. He doesn't want God to be worshipped. He wants worship. He doesn't want people submitting to God. He wants them yielding and submitting to him. So he remains irrationally filled with pride, uh, thrust down from the heavenlies to operate here on earth. He remains unrepentant, and he insists on those two things which are God's alone. He is powerful more than you and I are. However, like you and I, he's only a created being. Therefore, God, the creator, has defeated him. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And how was he defeated? Folks, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what rendered Satan a defeated foe. Satan thought when Jesus was impaled on the cross, he had him, he won. No, he didn't. You know what he did on the cross? He was the lamb offering substitutionary atonement for one such as you and I. He fulfilled the law for us, paid the penalty for the fact that we are lawbreakers, and then when buried up from the grave, he arose. Satan was clapping his hands prematurely. And then up from the grave was this risen Savior. Crucifixion and resurrection. Cross an empty tomb. Smacked Satan right in the face. Defeated him. And so he's a defeated 
foe already. He knows it, and therefore he is desperately seeking to maintain, to shore up his fallen kingdom. He's still in this world. He's still carrying on his evil ways, Satan is, but it's just a matter of time before he will be cast into what the scriptures refer to as the lake of fire. Now, though Satan's doom has been sealed, it says so right here. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Though his fate is sealed, the sentence has not yet been fully carried out, but it will be. In fact, I'd like to read you something written by this same author. John is writing, wrote the book we're studying, the Gospel of John. But he also wrote other things in the Bible, like the last book, the book of Revelation. And there, the same John we're reading about here said this. Listen to this, Revelation 20, about the fate of Satan. Then I saw, John saw it. See, that's why it's called the book of Revelation. He saw it, didn't hear it. He saw it. By the way, it's not the book of Revelations. So if you ever hear a preacher say that, let's look at the book of Revelations, you should throw something at that. Yeah, please, just do it. I, I, I'm telling you, and then run like crazy. No, no, it's not Revelations. It was seen as a whole vision, singular. It's the book of Revelation. This is what John says. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. Who's the dragon? Well, let's read on. The serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. No interpretation is necessary because we're told who the dragon is and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Folks, that's what's going to happen to Satan. His time is short. I hope I'm not getting overly dramatic, but I think he realizes it more than you and I do, and he is turning up the burner, operating today at a fever pitch, because he knows his time is limited. Folks, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus defeated Satan. He only functions as he does now because sovereign God, the Father who created him, is permitting him to do so just for a little while longer. But his eternal destruction, though still future, is certain. Now, verse 32, the Lord says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself. Satan's going down. Uh, the Lord Jesus speaks about himself being lifted up. Now, you may be thinking he's referring to the resurrection, and surely he was resurrected, but bear with me. I don't think that's what is meant here. I'll tell you what I mean. In those days, when someone was going to be killed, the Jews had a practice. They would take that person, the one to be killed for some crime, they would take him to an elevated area, a hill, a mountain. They'd throw him off. And then he would hit the ground. And then they would stone him if there was any life left in him. Therefore, when the phrase will be lifted up is used, they knew it wasn't death by stoning. It was death by crucifixion. I'll show you just in a second that I'm right. <laughs> Hang in there just for a second. But just imagine now, this is what the Lord is talking about. If I'm lifted up, if I'm on the cross impaled for human sin, I will draw all men to myself. So, so what does that mean? Does that mean um, all people are saved? 
If I'm lifted up, if I'm on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. Some people say so. This, they make a case for what's called universal salvation from this. I'll draw all men to myself. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean every singular man or woman. It means every kind of man or woman. Look around. We're not the most diverse group in the history of the world, but there's a nice uh, uh, small indication of diversity. For instance, there's Stan right there. Stan, you look different than me. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> We're different. Look, look around. We're of different heights and genders and ages and all the rest. And take it out of the confines of this building. Let's go around the world. There are Christians in Nicaragua. Did you know that? They've been drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ. There are Christians in Ukraine, in Crimea, in Russia, in other South American countries. There are Christians in Congo and Sudan and other places in Africa. There are Christians in Jordan and in Saudi Arabia and in Syria and in Israel, even in Israel. There are Christians in the United States. Don't you see? Every kind of person has been drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ in the same way by God's grace. Our faith placed in him as Savior. And that's the great common denominator, the level playing field that unites otherwise diverse and separated aspects of humanity. So this is not saying everyone is saved. It's saying every kind of person will be drawn to the cross when I am lifted up. People without distinction, that's what it's saying, will be drawn to the cross for their sins. But he was saying this, verse 33, to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So you see, that's why I think I'm right about my interpretation in the prior verse when I told you, when it says, if I be lifted up, he's not talking about resurrection, he's talking about crucifixion, because it says right there. That he, but, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. He had to die a death by crucifixion. Why? Why wasn't he stoned? That was the common form of execution by Jews in that day. Why didn't they just stone him? Well, I'll tell you why. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Listen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law is a curse? Well, if it is, if you're trying to live by it in order to be right with God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In Galatians, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? Because those who died that way were guilty. They were pronounced guilty of some violation of law. Therefore, they were impaled on a tree, on a cross. Christ, on the other hand, was guilty of nothing. But he bore the guilt of our sin upon himself. He bore the curse due us by hanging on a tree for us, exactly in fulfillment of what it says in Deuteronomy. Curse it is everyone who hangs on a tree. He couldn't be stoned. It looks like the crazy crowd and the Jewish religious leadership and the Roman governing authorities are calling the shots, but they're not. Everything about the Lord's last days were in specific and precise fulfillment of prophecy. He had to be crucified. 
So verse 34, the crowd, they're perplexed by what he had to say. They answer him, we, 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 we've heard out of the law. When they're talking about that, we would call it the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew scriptures is what they're referring to. That's what the Bible they had. We, we, we've heard out of the law that the Christ, that means Messiah, is to remain forever. We, we've heard that his, he's eternal. How can you say, they're saying to the Messiah, they're, they're asking him, how can you say the Son of Man, another name for the Messiah, must be lifted up? Who is, who is this Son of Man? So they believe that when Messiah comes, he will establish an earthly kingdom over which he will rule eternally. But Jesus seems to be saying something different here, and they're perplexed. He was speaking of dying. He was speaking of a, of a cross, a dying Messiah was foreign to their misinterpretation of their own Hebrew scriptures. They had no room in their theology for a dying Messiah. Their notion was of a victorious Messiah who would command the armies of the heavenlies and rule and reign eternally. Now this pretender to the throne, this, this Jesus, what kind of son of man are you to claim that you have to die and of all things on a cross? So the Jewish people, my people, then and now, mishandle their own scriptures. I'll tell you why. They don't understand that the Messiah comes twice. They only see his first coming. And uh, they think he's coming only once as Lion of Judah to beat up on Rome, kind of be a political liberator, political messiah. That's why most of my people reject Jesus. He doesn't look very royal nor very kingly. He didn't usher in an age of peace by no means. He permitted himself to be impaled on a cross by these pagan Romans. How could he be our Messiah? And so my people then and now are unaware of passages like this in their own scriptures. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 53. But he... Who do you think that he is? He was pierced through for our transgressions. Pierced through. It's very interesting because at the time, piercing by crucifixion didn't even exist. Interesting. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. How could they miss the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? How could they miss it? How could they miss Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18? For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's the Messiah of Israel. How could they miss him? How could they miss the suffering servant and so they missed the two comings of the Lord Jesus, first as the Lamb of God, second, the Lion of Judah. The first time he came to suffer and die for sin, the second time he'll come to judge sinners. They missed his first coming. And so they asked, who is this son of man? Here's the Lord's response, verse 35. Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk 
while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Now I read this and I say, Lord, you missed the point. Why don't you just answer their question? It seems like he's not answering their question, and he's not. He is not addressing the issue they raised. He's addressing the need they have. They don't need a theological lesson. He's not there to debate things. He's there to tell them, I'm the light of the world. Use the light, or soon you will lose the light. That's what they needed to hear. They needed to hear, today is the day of your salvation. I'll not be with you much longer. That's what he said. He goes on in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. By the way, that's just how suddenly it happens. You become a son son or daughter of light just like that. You don't grow into it. You don't develop or mature. No, no, no. The moment you believe in the light, you become a son or daughter of light. Are you one? He's the light. He illuminates our lives, our minds, our hearts. He moves us from darkness to light. It happens if you've accepted Christ just like that, just like that. In fact, once I read this passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, I love it. For he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You're located in one of two possible domains. One is a domain of darkness. Who do you think is in charge of that one? But the prince of darkness. But the other is a different domain characterized by light, because the one, the entity who rules that one is Jesus, the light of the world. Which is it for you? You can cross over from the domain of darkness in an instant and be a child of the light. It says right there, believe in the light so that you may become sons of... Oh, but I'm not good enough. <laughs> I don't see. It says believe in the light. It's not about you. Believe in the light. And your residence, spiritual residence changes. You're moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And so the Lord's last word to the people in this crowd who soon will be calling for his crucifixion consisted of an unbelievably gracious invitation to believe. He never stopped inviting even the harshest of critics to believe. But there will be a time then and now when it will be too late to take the Lord up on his offer. And so our final phrase for tonight, the end of verse 36, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. This ends his public ministry. From now on in John's gospel, his comments will be made to his disciples only. The next time he appears to these people, will be in preparation to serve on Passover as the ultimate Passover lamb put to death for the sins of the world. And there will come a time for these people and even for those of us here when it is too late to say, 
Lord Jesus, light of the world, move me from the domain of darkness and transfer me to your kingdom in, whom I ha in which I have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. I want to end with a simple yet potentially life-changing question. What have you done with God's Son, Jesus the Christ? Nothing else matters. I volunteer. I give money to charity. I try to be a good person. Wonderful. Those are not the deciding questions. What have you done with Jesus Christ? He, your response to him, is the deciding matter with regard to your eternity. I beseech you, think of the Father waiting for your response. He's almighty. He's transcendent deity. He's the all-powerful one. He's all-present. He knows your thoughts. He's omniscient. I don't want to scare you, but you don't want to mess with his son. The son's dad is big. And we have to give an account. What have you done with my son? We sent him back to the father, beaten, bruised, and scarred. But for the father's grace, the world would be obliterated. Look what we did to his son. Still, he gives us an opportunity. My son went through all that for you. That shows you the value God the Father places on a relationship with you. He offered his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. I beseech you, make the right decision about the Son of God. Oh God, we pray that would be the case with every individual here tonight. You have been lifted up. Draw men and women to yourself, even tonight, personally, privately, in the power of your Spirit. Transition people by their faith from the domain of darkness to the one characterized by light. You, Lord Jesus, being the light of the world. I pray there be not one person here tonight who doesn't render the right judgment and verdict with reference to you. Thus, being absolved of the responsibility of being judged for personal sins and mistreatment of you. I pray there be not one person who leaves here tonight without being in close alliance with you as Savior and Lord. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.